So Luke chapter 7, um, we're going to look at verse 36 through 50. And listen, tonight's encounter with Jesus, is it's a really beautiful picture of the gospel. Um, but also in many ways, I think it's aimed at searching our hearts. Um, it's aimed at searching our hearts to see if we have one of two things. If our love for Jesus and others is kind of this extravagant, just give it all up for him. Or if it's kind of a religious facade that seems to do okay without experiencing the, the deep forgiveness of Jesus. And we're just kind of okay with where we're at. So this text, I think, is designed at really trying to expose where we are at in our relationship with Jesus and others uh, as far as the love that we have. So Luke chapter 7, this is a, a stunning story. Verse 36 reads, One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table uh, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this even, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray and ask God for some help. To understand that and apply it. Father, we are asking for your help because we understand that every time we open this book, whether it's here in Mike's place on a Wednesday or on a Sunday or in the sanctuary or even in the morning before school or at night in our bed, we understand that every time we open this book, Lord, that it, it takes a miracle. It takes a sovereign act of your spirit to extract the truth from it and press it into us. We, we have to have eyes to see this stuff. We have to have ears to hear this stuff. And apart from a, a miracle, these will just be words. This will just be a good, nice little moral lesson. And we'll forget it, and we won't be changed, and we won't celebrate the gospel. So I'm begging for you to do something miraculous. Take a flawed and a broken and an ordinary person and take words on a page and make them come alive, press them into us, allow for them to change us. We ask this only in Christ's name, amen. 
Uh, I was a history major, you know this. Some of you hate history. Raise your hand if you hate history. It's like you're the math and science people, you're the, you know, whatever. I love it. It was just so great. So one of the things we studied, it was cool because it lined up with scripture. Uh, in the third century in Egypt, there was this terrible plague that swept the city uh, named Alexandria. Terrible, terrible plague. Thousands and thousands of people died. And one of the things that kind of turned the plague around was Christians from all around were coming to take care of people in the city, which was, in essence, a suicide mission. You know, there were no vaccines like or, hey, wear this, you know, NASA spacesuit. You'll be protected from the germs and all this. But but Christians were the ones who were leaving their health, leaving their stuff, leaving a comfortable life to rush in where there was danger. And according to historians, actually, one was at Dionysus the Great. He said this. This is a direct quote. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unabounded love and loyalty never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. So you had two different parties. You had Christians who were coming in from all over going, we might contract this plague, this disease, and lose our lives, but this is what we're called to do. And then you had another party, and the other party was this. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, hoping thereby to avoid the spread of the fatal disease. My question to you is we have a comparison of two different kinds of people in this story, eating at the table with Jesus. So my question to you, in a story like this, with these, you know, in third century Egypt, why does one group of people go, you know what, we're going to pour, we're going to make the ultimate sacrifice and give everything we can to help these other people? And the other goes, oh, I don't want to catch it, get away. What's the difference? I mean, fundamentally, what is the difference in these two parties? Why is one sacrificing everything and the other hoarding everything? Here's the difference. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. One group has been shown forgiveness, and so they absolutely cannot contain it. And they could not help but pour themselves out in sacrificial love. Because when you taste the kind of forgiveness that is available in the real gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot contain it. And this is just one example of how it, 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 it just comes out. It overflows. The big thing I want you to get tonight out of this text is this. A life of love is the response of a sinner who has encountered forgiveness. Not just, are you a bubbly person and you just want to be sweet to everyone because you want everyone to think you're cute and sweet, but I mean, do you actually have this gospel-centered, gospel-driven love that's a response to the forgiveness that you've been shown in Christ? When we grasp who we are apart from the rescuing arm of Jesus Christ and when we look at his work and when we look at his promises and when we look at his love and his commitment to us, it has to do something. It just has to. And one of those things that it just has to do is define us as being people who love deeply. Love Jesus deeply and love others deeply. So let's dig into some of the some of the meat here in this text, and, and again, pray that the Spirit apply it immediately. The first point is this, extravagant love from an extravagant sinner. 
Verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's another way of saying she was probably a prostitute. You know, different scholars, well, it could have been this. I'm of the opinion that it meant she was a prostitute. She sold her body, herself, uh, for money. So you have a woman, and she stumbles in and says, who was a sinner? When she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It's very, very expensive, especially for a prostitute. That would have been probably the most precious thing that she owned. She brings it. She's standing behind him at his feet. She's weeping, starts to wet his feet with her tears. That's a lot of tears. Wipes him with her hair. I mean, what is all this about? I mean, is this lady just an emotional basket case? What does this mean? Well, you have to understand, this is a really scandalous thing that just happened. We read it in a story, and, you know, if you're a visual learner, you're like, okay, they're at the Olive Garden, you know, maybe Jesus has made a menu for it against Satan, I don't know. But they're at the Olive Garden, and a lady walks by and starts to sing. That's not it at all. So you have, you know, Jesus is eating at the house of a Pharisee, which is really a cool sidebar in and of itself. Jesus will engage anyone. The really, really bad or the really, really good who's really, really bad. That just sticks out to me. He's willing to engage with anyone, and so should we be. So this uninvited, peculiar guest shows up who's a prostitute. Now, how this would have worked, this guy would have been wealthy. They would have probably been eating like in a courtyard. So it would have been kind of a semi-public event, but in no case would a prostitute have been encouraged, invited, or allowed to just walk right into the middle of Simon's Netflix and chill sesh. You know, just bust right in, go, hey, I'm a prostitute, and the Savior of the world is here, and check this out, uh, I'm just here. At no point would that have been something that would have, would have been acceptable. It's very weird, it's very scandalous. Now, what would have driven her to take this kind of a risk? Because that was very risky. I mean, what would have driven her to do something like that? The only explanation here for taking such a risk is that this woman was absolutely desperate. She was absolutely overcome with her sin. She was absolutely desperate for healing, for peace, for restoration, for grace. But she was also absolutely sure that she would find all of that because of the things that she had heard about this Jesus. You see, Jesus even helps illustrate what's going on in her heart in verses 41 and 42. He's a great teacher. He illustrates so well. He's going, hey, so uh, these two people owe this guy a lot of money. One is two years worth of salary, and the other is like, eh, you know, 50 bucks. And the guy goes, you know what? You're both forgiven. Who's going to walk out of there more excited about being forgiven of their debt? Probably the guy who owed two years of salary. And he's illustrating that. He's telling us something about this woman. He's also telling us something about this Pharisee, about Simon here. He's saying, hey, this woman knows who she is. She's come, to, she's come to terms with who she is apart from my grace. And she knows the extravagance of her sin. And so her love matches that. Guys, I have a real question for you. Are we the kind of people that are marked by that kind of love? I mean, she could not contain herself in the presence of Jesus, and she makes herself look like a total fool in public. Again, I mean, was she just an emotional basket case? Was she some kind of weirdo? No, she was overcome with gratitude of sin being forgiven. The perfume that she dumps out, again, that was probably the most precious, valuable thing that she owned. 
So think about in, in your home. I mean, what is the most precious and valuable thing? She takes the probably, again, the most expensive thing that she's ever owned. She takes it and she pours it out and wastes it for the glory of Jesus. This would have made no sense to bystanders. Is this the kind of love, though, that we exude? Is this the kind of excitement? Is this the kind of gratitude that we show inwardly or outwardly when we think about things? When we think about what sin is, what it's done to us, and yet what Jesus promises. I mean, think about it. Do we risk looking like fools in the world because of the love that Jesus has shown? And that could look so different. I mean, there's many ways that you, as a Germantown high schooler, could look like a total fool. Maybe it's prioritizing your time differently. You know, it's going, you know what? I can't come to practice or I'm not going to work on Wednesday nights because it's a really important time that I get together with my, you know, church family and we do a lot of soul work. Or I'm not going to work Sunday mornings. I mean, you look like an idiot to people. They're going, oh, what a youth group nerd. Like, what's the deal? I mean, perhaps it's the way you date, you know, or just your, your overall, you know, view of the opposite sex. Like, you, people could think you're just crazy for thinking this way or thinking another. I mean, it could be... Hey, uh, it's study hall, and I'm reading God's Word. That's foolish, isn't it? I mean, it can be a number of things. It could be uh, like talking in a loving way, but in a bold way when it comes to some of these hot-button cultural issues that Christians seem to be so quick and easy to fold on because, oh, we don't want to look like we're judgmental. We don't want to look like we don't love. It could be just kind of standing up and truthfully, lovingly being bold. You know, it could be, you know, like this lady takes something that's very valuable to her and she wastes it. It could be taking a a talent or an ability that you have and using it to expand God's kingdom for his glory instead of yours. That could look foolish. People would go, oh, man, you're going to go so far doing this, that, and the other. Why are you doing that, you know? It could look like, in a simple way, the way you worship. Like literally worship, like literally sing. One of the most depressing things that I do um, is, is look at some of you, not all of you, and, and don't get the mindset that like how hard you're closing your eyes, that's how spiritually connected to Jesus you are. If your hand is like halfway up, you're, you know, you're, you're pretty spiritual, but then at that point when it goes all the way up, like you're totally in with Jesus, don't think I'm looking at you thinking those kind of things because they're not true. But one of the most depressing things I do, even when I fill in for Umlauf and lead worship over in the big room, I mean, we're singing these unbelievable things about sin being forgiven and our debt being paid and the gospel. And I'm telling you, some people look freaking angry. <sighs> Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. I mean, it's just like, what are you doing? I mean, what are you doing? And I get it. Some people aren't super expressive. And, you know, men especially, we're like, Lover, you know, we don't want to be seen and heard, but it's re- it really can be telling of what your heart is experiencing. I'm not advocating for the more outlandish and crazy you are and running all around. That's the more you love Jesus, but it can be really telling. You can look at someone and go, "How can you sing that and just not even not even sing that? How can you read that and just?" The principle is clear. A true encounter with Christ's forgiveness, it just necessitates affection. 
for him that has to show up. Second thing is this, self-righteous love from a self-righteous, oops, misspelled the, the second righteous. What does that say? Right, right toys, uh, sinner. Sorry about that. I was drunk when I made the PowerPoint earlier. So Jesus makes it clear that Simon did not even meet cultural standards when it came to welcoming Jesus. At the time, you know, when a guest would come into your house, you would do certain things to show that, hey, you're welcome. Simon was kind of like, I want to have dinner with this clown. Like, what's he up to? I heard he's done some magic tricks. Is he a prophet? Is he not? I don't know about this guy. I don't know. So I'm not going to do the normal stuff. We're just going to see what happened. He, he views the woman, and he says he would have known that this sort of woman, he views her with disdain, and honestly, he had a very similar attitude towards Jesus. Why? Here's why. Here's why Simon was so mad at Jesus. It was turning everything on its head, what he thought was true about religion. Because here's what Simon thought, and listen, without even knowing it, here's what many of you think. I mean that. Tonight, here's what many of you, this is your theology. For him, religion was about being good, and he had been good. He, had a, he really did have a pretty good record. So it was about being good, and God was for good people who kept the rules. And Simon had kept the rules. And so he's ticked off when he sees this lady who clearly has not kept the rules. Wait, wait, wait. She's bad. She's off limits. Those who break the rules are off limits to this God who looks at us who are good. And that infuriated him. And I'm telling you, in your heart of hearts, without you even knowing it, that infuriates many of you. Wait a minute, why is life going okay for, for him or her? I'm not drinking, I'm not sleeping around, I'm not doing drugs. They are, and they seem to be fine. Or they, see, they how do they get forgiven? Do you know what they did last year? Oh, now they're showing up to church, and oh, they're singing, and this and that. I mean, it's, it sounds nasty to hear it out loud, but functionally, how many of you think or behave like a Simon? You've invited Jesus to dinner, you know, you've invited Jesus into your heart, Come on in. But you haven't laid down your life before him. I mean, think about it. The, 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 the chick that you know is you know, known for sleeping around or going too far, or the dude you know who does drugs. I mean, how do you, how do you think about those, those kinds of people? Not even what do you do. That's, that's next. I mean, how do you respond to them? How do you go after them? How do you even think about those kind of people? That's very telling of your understanding of grace. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. I'm telling you guys, the gospel is shocking. Jesus came for some really messed up stuff. Stuff that maybe you haven't done. Stuff that maybe you've been protected from up to this point in your life. But Jesus came for some really bad messed up stuff. And we should celebrate that. Again, this whole scene is very scandalous. Uh, there's a, a missionary in the Middle East, and she wrote um, a letter to someone just how explaining how unbelievably shocking this would have been, especially in this context. Here's what she, what she said. So she lives in the Middle East, which is a very different culture than ours. She says, The point that really stuck out to me about Jesus' response to this woman was its complete departure from what was socially acceptable. 
The worst sin a woman can commit here, like in the Middle East, is to lose or to appear to have lost her virginity outside of marriage. The whole honor of a family hangs on the reputation of its women. In some parts of the Arab world, all it takes for a woman to lose her reputation is to be seen speaking to a man who is not a relative. If a man, particularly a religious man, is known to have even spoken with such a lost woman, his reputation will follow hers down the drain. It's a hard system. Now, consider this same system, but take it back 2,000 years to a less forgiving time. Then think about Jesus' encounter with the sinful woman. Shocking, isn't it? And it really is. I mean, thank God for a shocking gospel, one that turns our twisted little standards on its head. You see, the problem with Simon is there's no room for grace in his theology. And one of the ways that we can test our grasp and our understanding of grace is how we respond to those that we think of as sinners, notorious sinners. What do we say about them? How do we treat them? You know, I'll never forget a few years ago, a student uh, made an appointment. It was my first year or two, like, in youth group. And a student made an appointment with me and, and, and wanted to come and see me. And they were super angry at me. And what they were angry about was this. They basically said... I'm concerned that our youth group is uh, turning worldly. And I said, well, can you explain? Like, I mean, what, what do you mean? What, is, what does that mean? And basically he said, well, I just see like a lot of non-believers coming here more than I used to see. And they're using rough language. And, you know, I just don't appreciate that. And they're feeling welcomed here. And I told them, I said to them, well, you have just given our youth group probably one of the greatest compliments that we've ever received. And then I challenged them to actually go and read his Bible. I mean, the guy, I mean, to a T, had such a pharisaical approach to what this gospel is supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to do to us. Does Jesus celebrate and condone this woman's lifestyle? No, he forgives her sins, but then he expects and even empowers a life change. My last point, and then we're done, is this. Getting grace leads to giving grace. Getting grace leads to giving grace. I guarantee you this woman left a more gracious woman than when she had arrived. You see, she loved much because her large debt had been canceled. Simon had been looking at this woman the way that she used to be, not the woman that she now was in Christ, who was loved, forgiven, clean, safe, valuable. The grace that she now experienced was going to permeate throughout every facet of her life. I'll close with this. Um, I don't know if you're sports fans. In 2013, um, a guy... He was a wide receiver for the Eagles. He uh, used a racial slur in a rant that was caught on video, and it was like the bad one. It was the racial slur. And it was caught, and he came and he apologized profusely, but what was interesting is he had two different reactions from two different people on his team. And both of these people were, were African Americans, and one of them said, the first response came from a, a guy named LaShawn McCoy. He said, I forgive him, but... In situations like this, you really find out about someone, and I can't ever really respect someone like that. And he tried to kind of distance himself from his friend. And the other response was from a guy named Michael Vick, 
You might remember he spent two years in prison after you know, being caught up in, in running a dog fighting ring. And his response was this, as a team, we understood because we all make mistakes in life, and so it's easy to forgive him. Well, why the difference in responses? Why the two different responses? You see, you spend almost two years in jail, and you know what it feels like to long for forgiveness. I find that, that for you guys in kind of these early stages of your life, you know, where you just haven't had tons and tons of opportunities to screw up yet, in the main, most of you tend to be harsh towards other people's sin. Quick to judge, quick to say, I would never do that or I haven't done that. And I think it's just part of it. It's because, again, you just haven't had the opportunity to go and really find out a lot of who you are yet. That's why I love spending time with older people who have screwed up. I mean, there's just a safety there. There's a graciousness that comes when you see who we really are and what we're really capable of. Ungracious people are those who just don't know who they are yet. And gracious, forgiving, loving people are those who are coming to terms with their need for deep forgiveness every day. So my question to you is this. Are you meeting with God? Are you meeting with God in his word and begging him to cultivate in your heart and in your life a gracious love, an extravagant love? One that doesn't hold back, one that says, I owe absolutely everything because I've been given everything. And when that happens, it'll show up with your relationship with Jesus and it'll show up in how you do life with others. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and we're grateful of how it teaches us, how it convicts, how it shows us what is true and what is real. We need it. We need for you to press the truth of it into our hearts and our minds and our lives. But again, as I prayed at the beginning, only an act of sovereign grace, only an act of your spirit can do that. And so I pray that you would do that tonight. There are many Simons in this room who are in need of real grace, not just a pseudo outside religious kind of grace. So Lord, may our response be like that of this woman's who gave it all because she had been given it all. Will you accomplish that for the good of your people and for your kingdom? We ask it only in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.